right, friends, welcome back to the show today. It is my honor to be joined by Paul Pastor. How are you, sir? I'm great, Luke. How are you? I'm doing quite well, and you're joining us from the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, the woods. Like, of- I feel like I see nature through the, your window right behind you. You do. That's a reflection. But right in front of me here is um, a custom, about, a, about an eight by four foot window, nothing in it, just pure glass looking out on uh, the woods on a beautiful Oregon State Park. Um, yeah, we have just an incredible place that we live. It's actually in a ghost town. So we live in a ghost town of about 70 people. Uh, our nearest neighbors are Franciscan nuns. Uh, and every day we see uh, all sorts of wildlife and um, it's really quite the quite the place. Wow. Okay, a couple follow-up questions. First of all, ghost town. What exactly needs to transpire for a town to receive that designation? <laughs> I don't know. This is called a lumber ghost. So it's an old lumber town, an old mill town where there used to be a mill. The mills here are no longer. Uh, all we have is a post office and a cluster of houses strung along a highway. So okay. there used to be a school, a downtown, a store multiple restaurants, a church, Mm -hmm. all of those things are gone. Uh, And so all that's left are memories and rotting foundations out in the woods and a post office and us. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So to be clear, that is more a designation of the economic situation of the town, less about the (laughs) status of the supernatural and or a cult. Oh, okay. Yes, that is fair. I I will not comment on the latter part of that question, Uh, but it is a designation of the economic status. Our best days are behind us here. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. Fair <laughs> okay. I've, I've thoroughly derailed our conversation and we're barely even into it. Yeah. It, we're going to get far more off the rails. Okay. Uh, so context the, uh, for my listeners, uh, you, you've got a book, Bower Lodge. It's a collection of poetry mm-hmm. and, I feel like if you're going to be a poet, you need to live somewhere just like you described. Hmm. I feel like you you have to be a writer if you live where you live. (laughs) Did you become a writer and therefore you had to move there or did you live there and bring it out of you? That's a great question. Um, In hindsight, I think I've always been a writer, even though I did very little writing until my adult life. Uh, we bought our place here about eight years ago. It's probably not coincidental that my first book, which was actually a nonfiction book on the Holy Spirit called The Face of the Deep, came out uh, just a couple years after that. So my entire formal writing life has been in this location, which is incredibly inspiring, um, mostly because it's a bit isolated. Um, yeah. True boredom is possible out here, and I think boredom is essential for decent literature. I'm very confident about that. Um, yeah. so yeah, that, you know, place and tell me uh, more why you're confident about that. About boredom. About, yeah. yeah. Okay. What's the connection of boredom and creativity? Yeah. I need to think how I would phrase that. I think that, I think that genuine inspiration is something that happens from outside us, um, while craft and while, um, you know, we can plan like, how we would like to apply various aspects of creativity, whether we're a writer or a painter or a dancer or whatever, true inspiration has to come from a place of soul. And boredom allows for one of the most accessible wilderness experiences of the human heart and the human condition. And I think that that is actually a phenomenally, um, phenomenally rich ground. So while we tend to run from it, especially in our culture, uh, it's, 
by passing through that that we'll often find something really worthwhile on the other side. Hmm. It, it kind of seems to me that uh, like giving birth and giving life and also uh, boredom are only uh, like it's the same fertile ground that creates both. And it seems like if you if you want to experience like the beauty of like what the interior life has to offer, you also have to experience one of the less ideal components of the inner life, which is like boredom. And in some yeah. ways, like when you mute the lows, you also mute the highs. I agree with that. And I also think, and this sounds a bit counterintuitive, but I think that boredom is the byproduct of real attention. Um, people who are perennially distracted are not the people who are bored. People who are paying close attention to the circumstances of their lives are the people who are bored. And that's actually an incredibly numinous, rich, holy state to exist in. So, uh, you know, there is a type of boredom that, um, you know, is addicted to the over-informationed, over-stimulated culture of our day. And it would be good for us all to divest ourselves from that. But then there's also a type of boredom that's a bit of the natural state of things. Um, farmers are used to the tedium. Maybe that's a better word, the tedium of certain rhythms of life. Um, people who work uh, with animals or with nature mm-hmm. or with anything that has a very repetitive rhythm, just like the world does, just like the year does, they're used to that tedium. And so becoming used to that yeah. can actually be quite wonderful. Yeah, I, I forget who said it, but uh, someone much smarter than me said, uh, much of man's problems stem from an inability to sit silently alone in a room. If you, if you go to uh, any grocery store, any line, any queue anywhere, the first thing we do is we're bored because we're staying there for what's going to be 90 seconds or two minutes or whatever, and we'll grab our phone. And we can't just sit there and mm-hmm. be present. And it seems like there is – I like the way you use the word tedium, which I've never used before, but it's a great word. There's a boredom that comes from like not being challenged and not mm-hmm. being required – to like use your full energy to create or to do or to accomplish. And there's also a boredom that comes from, I can't deal with like the, the slow seasons and the, the, the lack of like uh, newness and novelty. And I feel mm-hmm. like the tedium is, you know, life has different layers and seasons and paces and, but there's a boredom from also just being like not trying anything. And sometimes our obsession with being entertained creates that boredom because we're never actually like mm-hmm. pushing ourselves forward. It's well said. It's really well said. Okay, that wasn't much of a question either. But okay, so we we agree um, that you have to sit there, and there actually are spaces that like create um, a conducive environment for the creative mm. process. Mm-hmm. Now, I think most of my uh, theory on the creative process, I think I, it derives from Stephen Pressfield in The War of mm. Art, a book I assume you probably have some famili- familiarity with, correct? Mm. I, I, I Yes, I have not read the, the full yes, thing, but I'm quite familiar with his thesis. Okay. Well, part yeah. of the thesis that has really been impactful for me is the idea that the muse shows up for those who show up. And part of like the creative process is like you just have to put your butt in the seat and trust yeah. that the muse will show up and guide you somewhere. Mm. It seems like if you're in a place like you just described, like there's a lot that enables you to show up and to put your butt in the seat and to let the muse guide you. That's is true. That your experience? Yeah, I think it is. Um, you know, and it's not it's not limited to uh, the wilds of nature. I think it's a, it, what helps with. Um, 
creating conditions conducive for the muse to show up, in my experience, is being faced with circumstances that are genuinely larger than yourself and completely beyond human control. So the thing about the woods mm. and the river and the weather and the incredible history and like like the incredible spirituality of this wild place in the Northwest where we live is this sense of being a very small human among very large forces, even spiritual forces, just roiling around you constantly. And it's the same sort of attention that makes you um, just look at the Grand Canyon or look at a ocean or look at, you know, the beautiful broad skies of the Midwest that just don't end in any direction. And you're just captured by those horizons, you know, all of us, uh, or, or a city like New York, where you, you step out onto the street and all of a sudden you're in this living ecosystem of humanity and culture. All of those things are larger than ourselves. And I think that each person, you know, you don't have to run to the hmm. woods. You don't have to have, uh, you know, the privilege of sitting in an art museum every day. Like the, you don't need to create those circumstances. And I actually think um, of Annie Dillard here. Many of your listeners might be familiar with her seminal work, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Um, I believe which one the Pulitzer Prize, um, which is essentially her very brilliant creative nonfiction musings on you know being at Tinker Creek in Virginia, and there's all this you know gorgeous like interplay of life happening around her. Well, the reality is that Tinker Creek is sort of a ditch water running behind a suburban, <laughs> like um, kind of a suburban uh, like yeah yeah. yeah. You know what I'm trying to say, like a housing development, basically. Not that there's not really wild spots, yeah, it's but it's not special. at all this. Exactly. Yeah. It's nothing special. It's like probably what you would find walking out of nearly any of our doors within, you know, 20 or 20 or 30 minute walk. And um, I think yeah. that that highlights just the incredibleness of this. Like all of us are, if we learn to see rightly, in those types of circumstances, we might just need to alter our expectations. In some ways, I have it really easy because I'm living in this you know, gorgeous place. Great. Fine. Good job, Paul. Um, but any of us have a Tinker Creek. Any of us have something that is a, a wash of life that's larger than ourselves that we can encounter. And from that draw life, spiritual life, creative life, personal life, restoration, um, by encountering something larger than ourselves. You use the phrase, if we see rightly, what are ways that could help us see rightly? Part of what you said even a few minutes before is like aware of the largeness and the magnitude, like whether it's a city or it's an ocean or it's a sunset, like what helps us to see rightly to like have this sort of creativity? Mm. Yeah, this is, this is the gift of the wisdom traditions. Um, you know, each deeply rooted human culture has a wisdom tradition. Uh, unfortunately, ours in modern America is is not deeply rooted. Uh, in fact, it's quite corrosive. And there are aspects of wisdom traditions available to us, but there's not an inherited uh, an inherited tradition. We've we've broken down. We're a very decadent culture. Uh, and so one of the, the challenges, the extra challenges that our generation has and our place has is to find uh, find a wisdom tradition capable of interpreting what sight even is. Uh, fortunately, as Christians, we have a huge head start with the Bible. One of the key metaphors throughout the scriptures uh, is of sight, right? Those who, who are blind, those who see, those who have eyes but do not see yeah. in that teaching of Jesus that is extremely disturbing. 
uh, you know, we can go on and on there. And so coded into the scripture is that means, uh, is that means of, of knowing wisdom and incorporating wisdom into your life. And by wisdom, I mean, how do you know what a well-lived life is and how do you implement that? So more than just the book of Proverbs, uh, it's, it's a, it's a whole life whole Bible view of what it means to be human as typified specifically in the person and in the work of Jesus. So uh, one of the things that draws me to poetry is precisely that same, uh, precisely that same move. I mean, obviously 40% of the scriptures is poetry to begin with. Uh, if you are, you know, if, if you don't read it, like you're at a loss uh, with some of the most beautiful passages and the most meaningful passages of our own holy book. Um, but it really does open your eyes, not always in specific or rational ways, but it opens it opens your eyes to possibilities of love, uh, to possibilities of wonder, uh, and what I might call a nobility of spirit um, that that is really really intriguing to me. So uh, yeah, it's kind of a long way of answering your question, but I think that that sight encompasses okay. the wisdom part of us. Okay, you use the phrase nobility of spirit, and there's no way I'm going to let you pass that on and just not unpack it. Uh, explain that phrase, nobility of spirit. It's almost easier to point to examples than to um, try and define okay. it. Um, many Great. of us know, um, you know, the say that just as one example among many, um, any, any high and noble warrior culture would embody this. So in the Western tradition, the chivalric tradition, which a lot of people poke fun at, but it's actually fairly compelling. It's very much like the samurai Bushido. But, but, you know, the samurai of Japan might be a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, for, the, for the samurai, yeah. uh, at their high point, not at their kind of, you know, hired gun assassin, uh, hitman, economic yeah, hitman yeah. point, which is part of history. We, we get all that. Um, to be a well-rounded yeah. person yeah. Meant, that you, meant that you had um, every aspect of, of the human soul essentially accessible to you. You could write poetry, beautiful Mm. poetry. Uh, Many of the great poets of Japanese history were warriors. They were knights of their tradition. Uh, And that's, that's very, that's very interesting to me. Uh, But then you could also fight. You could use your, your skills and your strength and service of a cause larger than yourself. And so I think of the code of honor among, um, among that culture that essentially said, look, like, you are the strongest, you're the toughest, you're the most skilled, you have all of this, and yet you will use your restraint not to pursue ends that are to the detriment of those around you, but because of these gifts that you've been given, because of the position you've been given, the strength you've been given, um, the, the tradition you've inherited, you will turn and you will use that for the betterment of other people. Uh, to the point where even a, even uh, death was not the worst thing that could happen. It was a dishonorable death. Um, and while that has its yeah. own you know difficulties, uh, I think that there's really something to capture there. And I think that especially in our culture, men and women, but particularly men, are longing for that type of nobility. They're longing for a type of inward strength that is that has access to the rational, the physical, the emotional, to a whole person way of being in the world. And uh, and poetry does that. It encourages that. It allows that. It enlarges us. It enriches our life. Uh, it connects us, you know, to our heart, the uh, seat of emotions, to our gut, the seat of intuition, and it allows us to enter life as as more whole people and as part of a broader tradition. 
So for all the messiness and the strangeness mm-hmm. of that, I do think that it is a really important part of cultivating what I might call a noble life. Um, not in some silly, yeah. disconnected way, but recognizing like, this is it, this is our lives. And we, with whatever we've been given, have a, have a duty and an obligation and a, and a joy of finding our place in service uh, to those yeah. about us who might need what we have to offer. Yeah, no, I, I think the uh, Bushido reference is a great one where it is, uh, and like you said, I, I think it, it's analogous to like the samurai culture to the cowboy culture. Like there is some really like idealized version that we see, and then like historically, that's uh, not so like picture perfect like we want it to be. <laughs> but like in the highest ideal of it is you have someone who yeah. is who is self-sacrificial, but also is yeah. in tune with the whole human experience. Um, That's exactly you right. Made the statement that men, especially, are longing for this. Mm. Do you think that men are longing for this because, for for many, that they are just disconnected, or, or what? What do you think causes mm. that sense of longing, especially for men these days? Yeah. Oh, that's a really good question. Um, so I'm I'm the oldest of uh, five siblings, four brothers. Uh, my youngest brother just turned 18. So there's quite an age span between us, um, about a 16-year age span. Um, and watching, watching mm-hmm. each of them as they've navigated the transition from childhood into adolescence, and then from adolescence into early adulthood, and then being in close community with, with friends, dear friends, and with mentors, men in particular, who are older than myself, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that male culture today is, is in shambles. It's just in shambles. And, um, in, and there are so many false stereotypes that we need to break down around that. One is that men are not community oriented, that they're individual. Actually, we are desperate to know where and to whom we belong. That's one of the core things of the, of the stereotypically male soul that we need. The idea that men are not uh, emotive or in touch with their emotions. Actually, like we are ruled to a huge degree by our emotions, um, no matter who we are, where we come from. And the degree to which we're out of touch with that is probably the degree to which we're fairly unhealthy. Uh, you know, so there's all of these stereotypes, but hmm. I think more than anything, Men, and particularly men in early or middle adulthood, are desperate to know what the hell they're doing here. Why? Why am I so yeah. so strong? So, like, I've been given I've been given great things, and I don't know where we're going. And it's a breakdown of a cultural story in America that has contributed to that. We're not sure what we're all working for together. Uh, it's a breakdown of. Um, initiation traditions we don't even have minor initiation traditions anymore in our in our culture we don't know when we've arrived we don't know the moment we'd cross from boyhood into mm-hmm. manhood or from manhood into whatever is in that middle section before eldership or from that middle section whatever that is into the actual true like generative elder role um and so I think at each point, what men are desperately seeking is language and a name for what they're experiencing and to be reassured that there are others around them who are going through those same things. And again, we, we bump up against, uh, against a remarkable gift of poetry in this um, because of its nature to unite kind of the domains of the head and the rational and the heart and the emotional and the gut and the intuitive. It's able to put voices to 
um, a, a culture that transcends time in some way. And you have to cobble it together yourself. But that is the state of contemporary humanity is having to cobble together a culture for each of us that is that is healthy and workable because the externals have all failed or are in the yeah. process of all failing. So I don't know if that answers your question at all, but, um, you know, I think that I think that we're desperate, no, particularly I think, uh, as men, for something different and for something deeper. No, I think it's spot on. I, I think your observation about initiation rights is pretty spot on. Uh, R- Richard Rohr has done a lot with initiation rights and, and male spirituality that I found to be deeply meaningful. And he points to initiations as or initiation rights as something that we are sorely lacking. And the idea yeah. of like, what's our purpose here? What are we commonly? Uh, what are we working toward as a, a common group? Like that seems to be pretty nebulous at this point, um, at best. And yeah. So you talk about like we need language, we need names, and you talk about how poetry can help do that. Mm. How so? How, how, like, how does poetry give us that? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, the way that I would phrase it is, it enlarges and enriches our souls. Um, perhaps an athletic reference is helpful here. I love the cliche, um, "I don't skip leg day," right? Uh, speaking to the idea that like if you're working out leg day matters right it it just really matters yeah so uh you gotta you gotta work the legs even though it might not be the most immediately photogenic even though it might be hard even though you just might not like want to do it you might look funny while you're doing it you don't skip leg day okay well if we sort of transition that to the inward life or to how we learn or to how we grow. A lot of people are great about feeding the brain part of them, right? They're great about um, getting the books and, and reading and just trying to improve that to learn more. But they forget completely that for much of history, that very rational way of, of living um, was always held in balance with beauty and with wonder. And uh, in our culture, we just collectively mm-hmm. skip poetry often, which is leg day. It's exercising something about us that is deeply human, deeply rich, deeply strong, deeply beautiful. And we're just not used to really working those muscles. So uh, I, I think we need to do that. Um, I think that we need to take a cue from the Bible, which is, like I said, roughly... 40% poetry. I think we need to take a cue from literature, world literature, and Western literature, all of which has these massive classics that are passed down generation to generation, specifically because they so matter to the human soul, not just because somebody was famous who wrote it, but because it's worth handing down. And a tremendous amount of that tradition is poetry. So I guess the question I would pose to anyone who you know thinks it's not for them is, well, have you really tried it? And have you... Um, have you have you found like uh, have you found something or anything that that enlarges or enriches you? Because I think you will. At least I have. Uh, at least I have. Okay, well, let me tell my listeners, uh, Paul, our conversation beforehand where I said, I feel like I'm more meathead than I am poet, so this conversation about poetry is going to be fun uh, and interesting. And so with that as a background, the fact that you use a leg day reference to make an analogical statement is very considerate of your audience, uh, specifically me, and I appreciate that. Um, but I get it. Like, the idea, like, it's the hardest day that most people don't want to do it, and... 
yesterday I had to lift in the afternoon, which I usually don't like to do because it's harder. I like to do the hardest things in the morning, first thing. And yesterday was leg day. I was like, oh, it'd be easy to do like a press day instead of a leg day <laughs> in the afternoon when I'm tired. But you, you got to do the hard things. And so I, I think your statement about like, you, you got to do the things that don't come natural or easy or that, that require mm-hmm. effort is ultimately what we all need to be well-rounded and ultimately to be healthy. And so if you're encouraging mm-hmm. us, like follow the lead of the f- scripture, which is you know 40% poetry, uh, according to your math, which sounds about right to me. Um, what would mm-hmm. it look like if you're going to prescribe someone like an introduction to how poetry uh, and using this art as a way to like enlarge themselves and their view of the world? Like, what would it look like, like really practically? Like, wh- what is having poetry a part of your normal routine look like? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I think it can look differently for other people. Um, on a practical level, it probably just means buy a small anthology. Um, often like the, the big presses, especially in New York, will put out like just great collections of poetry and they'll select things that are, you know, super beautiful. So rather than just picking one voice or one time period, you know, find an anthology that speaks to you. Maybe it's a themed anthology. Maybe it's about something. And then as you go through, just, you know, you read with attention and you read slowly. You're not reading for comprehension. You're reading for an inward way of knowing and of really connecting with, with the poet. It's a very relational form of writing, very crafted. Um, I say this sometimes, some people think of it as the milk of literature, as if it's somehow the weak sauce. It's the whiskey of literature. Trust me, it's distilled. It's, you know, passed again and again, and it's aged. Um, It's strong stuff. And just like somebody who's taken, you know, a 12-year bourbon neat for the first time, and they're like, oh, I don't think this is for me. Um, Maybe your first sip or two isn't, but but let that get inside you and feel that good burn um, and understand like there's a reason that somebody thought this was precious enough to age for 12 years in an oak barrel and to care about and to bottle with care and to give with, with value. Uh, there's something special about it. I really think mm-hmm. of poetry that way. It's very distilled language. Um, and so just try sipping it, (laughs) try it out. Um, you know, find something that works for you. doesn't, yeah, try sipping it. You know, that's, Mm -hmm. that's really all I can say. And if, if you like it, you like it. And if you don't, you don't, but in either case you've tried. Mm -hmm. Well, on new years of last year, year and a half ago, I was with a friend who is, uh, he, he has like a prohibition style, like war chest of, of bourbon, I believe. And so he brings out this fancy bottle and I like, I don't, I hardly drink anything. And so he's like, here, have, have some of this. This is, and he said the price, which was exorbitant. And I tried, I'm like, I, I, I feel like I'm dying right now. Like, I feel like death has just mm. entered into my esophagus and mm. this cost a lot of money. I feel like you're wasting it on me. Cause I don't really get the like significance of what I'm consuming. Uh, I, I feel like almost yeah. like with, with literature, which is like, okay, I don't, I don't fully get it. I know that I need to like build up a tolerance to it or what, like develop mm. appreciation so that I can really get out of it. And so I've been doing this podcast for a while now, and usually it's like nonfiction is the kind of books that I talk, but occasionally we'll have uh, like a musician on. And I've always found like, oh, so you wrote this song. Um, that's really cool. You wrote a song. Uh, what was it like? It, like I, I don't feel like I ever know how to talk about songs. Mm. And so I've learned just like, okay, well, just tell me the story behind it. And so here's something I'm going to try to do. Like, And hopefully you're cool with it. 
Can mm-hmm. I read a selection yeah. from your book? Please. And then we just talk about yes. it? Is that cool? Because I feel Absolutely. like if I just say a line from it, it, like it doesn't do it justice, right? Bring okay. it on. All right, Bring so here's on. one that right. actually is, um, it is actually titled Bower Lodge. Um, page mm. 59 if you're reading along in your, your, your book. Mm. All right, here it goes. You'll know the day has come because you fear it. The comfortable omens fail. The geese fly north in winter. Then will be the time to do your first great dying, to follow your familiar stranger into the house you dread. Set below the river that cares not if you love it, but flows away regardless. Never twice the same. A little like your soul, this water goes onward, elegant and simple, only what it is. And nothing more are you laid down within the bower. Here the lodge of death smells of smoke and salt. For the work of death is dying. Not many of us do it. We certainly expire, but death is not the same. As expiration, it is a clarity of being, a last enunciation that starts again anew. So listen, die well in the bower of the river. Let it wash you of yourself and treasure what is left. Your gift will be the greater when geese fly south in summer. You can call them to the river, for you will know your name. Beautifully read. Thank you. Is there a story behind that that you could share with us? Mm. Oh, of course. There's so many stories behind that. Uh, so yeah, this is the this is capturing the experience or the feeling of coming to a point in your life where it all goes wrong, um, and that that sense of uh, uh, geese flying the wrong direction for their season uh, is is really horrific. The more you think about it, something something deep and elemental has gone backwards. And I think that coming, this is actually coming back to the initiation moments. I think that each of us in our lives, uh, and Richard Rohr is actually very interesting on this. And so is Bill Plotkin, who is a uh, remarkable death psychologist that Richard Rohr reads a lot uh, and has spoken at Rohr's uh, men's events, actually. Um, and, And they talk about these moments in human life that are a little bit like, like puberty, um, where there's where there's something happening that is a lifespan initiation moment, a lifespan thing where you're entering a new a new phase of yourself. Um, but perhaps unlike puberty, it's not like your body's changing; it's something inside you. And so that experience, when it mm-hmm. comes, and it should come for everybody. Some of us avoid it successfully for decades, uh, but it should come for everybody. That experience feels like this. Feels like this poem. It feels like an inevitable, hmm. slow pacing towards your own tomb in a place where you won't be able to breathe, except beneath the river, as everything that you thought was solid and stable begins to reverse itself and the geese are flying the wrong direction. And so the story behind this is sort of me speaking to myself about me, about this moment in my life and saying, um, when it comes, choose to go with it. Choose to die well. Um, There's life on the other side of that, but you won't reach it if you hold back. Um, You know, let the, let the river, let that process of internal death wash you of yourself because it will simplify you. It will change you. Um, and ultimately you'll find life on the other side. And, and so much of the Christian story is, is wrapped up in this. You know, we might call it, um, sanctification. We might pro- call it practice for resurrection. Um, 
but human life, I think, has has several moments like this um, where we come to a place of inward turmoil, of struggle, of confusion, and ultimately, what that is is it's an invitation to die. And you can turn it down and walk away. Yeah. It'll come back later, worse and harder and more brutal. Or you can go with it, and you can trust that that um, you know the image in, in Bower Lodge, uh, the collection is that of uh, a lovely and implacable embalmer. Somebody who is beautiful and somebody who also is going to carefully dissect you and take your guts out and set them to the side and preserve you for that eventual resurrection. And that process is painful and it's hard. Um, and yes, it absolutely comes out of multiple moments in, in my personal life. But I think it's those, those waypoints that many of us will likely recognize as something that we've encountered in our own souls or our own spiritual lives. That's what I'm speaking of in this piece. You have this line, for the work of death is dying. Not many of us do it. We certainly expire, but death is not the same. When you think of mm. like the work of what death is that not many of us do, mm. what comes to mind? Mm, it's an active surrender, an active surrender. Um, yeah, that difference between death and expiration is something I've thought a lot about. Um, you know, there are many people I've been close to who have passed, um, friends long before their time and loved ones and a brother and so many close people to me. And in those days, it's so interesting to see how the people we love face, face their death. Um, and there is a difference between expiration where it's like, you're going, you're just, you're going out. It's like you're a candle going out and, and a difference between, uh, those people who are able to choose. I will die. Well, I am going to die. Well, I'm going to steward this last experience. And as hard as it will be, this is it. This is the end. I will die. Well, and it actually is an enunciation like a word it's saying something this is what i am this is who i am as you pass and transition into that next phase of your reality uh rather than going out rather than a silence it's a statement and so uh i think we practice for that with the metaphorical inward deaths of our life practicing for the great <laughs> for the for the great show for our own deathbed which we're all moving towards we know we're going to get there uh, but the way that we respond yeah to that final moment is characterized all the way before. Um, and so that's just a huge theme of, of Bauer Lodge is how do we do that? How do we practice enunciation rather than expiration each time we encounter an opportunity to die, whether it's large and literal or small and metaphorical? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss and uh, losing a brother. That sounds really awful. So I'm sorry for your loss. Mm. Uh, as you talk about like, hey, these, thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, as as you talk about like these deaths, it, to go back to Roar, like Roar, I forget which book it was, one of the more recent ones. He talked about like every little death that we experience, like we develop this muscle memory to trust in in God, like in, mm. in the great, mm. um, yeah. you know, the great source of all life. That I am trusting you with these small deaths, so that I have developed the muscle memory, so that when I get to the precipice of the age to come, that I'm comfortable doing something that I've mm. done in small and significant ways but none yeah like compared to what i'm about to do and so we like in these small deaths like you're talking yeah. about you learn to let go and trust god then so that you can trust god at the you know on the precipice of the age to come there's a, a line that you talk about uh, a few sentences later so it goes like this it says so listen die well in the bower of the river let it wash you of yourself then treasure what is left 
and the way I've like I, mm. I read that and I in me the way it connects to me is the idea that there is a version of me uh, dare I call it my false self that is continually being stripped away from me if I let it go and eventually if I trust enough this work that's happening in me and through me that eventually this truest version of who God created me to be will be revealed when you think about like the treasure of what is left as you let this wash over like what comes to mind for you though Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't exactly know how much of me is a smaller self and how much of me is that true self and that true name and that central thing. It is death that reveals it. That's the great gift of any type of death. And so we can't really know that. We can only know that to the degree to which we've died. We can only know our true name and our true gift to the degree to which we've lost those things. Um, I genuinely believe that. And that's part of the central hope of the Christian message. It's right there, right smack dab in the middle of all of Christ's teachings. And we walk past it kind of most of the time, rather than seeing it as an invitation to constantly come and die because it does something good in us. We're connected in a different way to life in that, in that promise. So I'm not sure. I think it looks very different for each of us. Um, an image that comes to my mind, that I think of often actually, you know, comes from the book of revelation where, you know, Christ is offering gifts to the overcomers, like in the letters yeah. of the seven churches. And there's one, I forget which church it is. Um, you might know Luke, uh, but I'm blanking on it right now. And he says to the one who overcomes, I will give a white stone on which is written a name, a new name, um, that nobody knows except me and the one to whom I give it. Mm -hmm. And that image is so haunting and so bizarre and so beautiful. The idea of there, you've overcome, and it's a metaphor, but still. And then Christ giving you a white stone on which is written your true name, and no one knows it, and I believe that no one can know it because it is so inexpressibly you and it is your great secret. It's the great secret that you share with your creator, that essence. This is who I am. No one else has it. There are many Luke's. There are many Paul's. Whatever is written on that stone for each of us will be completely unique in all of eternity. And so it's, it's death. <laughs> it's the overcoming yeah. that, that reveals that. Right. And so, yeah. um, and so I suppose the answer to your question is I get a little clue. I get a little peek as to what might be written on that stone, um, in anticipation, uh, a tease as it were a divine tease, uh, to, to know and to love that. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. And so the invitation for us is, like, will we go? Will we trust the work that is being done? Will we trust what the river is doing to us? Yeah. And so we have options, like, of how we respond to that. Like, yeah. do I go with it or do I not? Do I um, prevent myself from experiencing, yeah. like, the, the boredom and the ennui that is, like, the fertile ground for, like, growth and art and the gift that we have to give the world? Or do we, like, keep ourselves addicted to our phone and always have just a little bit of attention in front of us <laughs> and something sparkly and shiny? You, you have a... Mm. A poem elsewhere in the book where it's uh, like 
I forget the, the title of it, but it's like you can either go barefoot or not. And there's like one option. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah you, yeah. you never feel or experience anything. The other one is like your feet get really dirty and they get calloused and they get like, they become like leather. Um, but you got to choose, mm-hmm. like, are you going to put the shoes on or not? Are you going to feel nature, feel life, feel, and this is me processing it. Um, mm-hmm. Like, are you going to experience all of what mm-hmm. life is and deal with the messiness that it comes like that, that comes with it or like you're just gonna be comfortable and busy and distracted and and mm. always clean it's, it's your choice like you get to choose what you want to do mm. that's exactly right yeah the poem's called leatherfoot and that's exactly right i think that's that choice is something that faces us all the time and it's a gift at certain moments in life when that choice is taken away where where some aspect of difficulty comes and we would never choose it but it punches in and all of a sudden we're like okay, the shoes are gone and now I just have to walk. But one of the beauties Mm. of life, and we're coming back to nobility of spirit here, one of the things that make us noble is the ability to choose and to practice that. And it's not lost on me that we're having this conversation in the great season of Lent, which is a historical Christian season of practice for exactly this thing. It's practice for an athleticism of the soul. It's saying we're going to take 40 days of fasting in order to better feast. We're going to take 40 days of practicing saying no to ourselves when we don't have to, because the larger context is we believe that there will times, there will come times when we do have to, and we want to have practiced that. We want to have practiced being watchful, being strong, um, being in that sense, noble. Uh, so I really, I really love and I'm, and I'm, I'm attentive to that. Um, and believe that, you know, we can practice in, in many ways, some difficult and some easy, some really painful and some actually fairly enjoyable, um, such as the reading of poetry or other ways of, of bettering and embiggening our souls, to quote the Simpsons, right? Yeah, embiggening, that's a, that's a great word. That word. Yeah, that, that's a great word. Yeah. yeah. When, when I was younger, I would think like literal is the highest form of communication like let's just be real literal nuts and bolts and eventually that led me to having mm. an emaciated soul and, and an, a very mm. like, distorted understanding of who god is and a broken relationship with god because no one would ever say an instruction mm. manual is like a higher form of literature than something <laughs> elizabeth barrett browning wrote like no one's gonna ever say like how you mm. you know a- assemble an ikea f- furniture is better than something like Shakespeare wrote. No one would, but it's literal, it's direct, there's no ambiguity to it. But I think it speaks to the complexity of life that there is ambiguity in everything. The things that matter most can't be reduced to two plus two equals four. Like the things that matter the most are always going to be ambiguous. And so anything that usher us into that complexity and the honest uh, experience of life in all its different layers, I think is what to use the Simpson language, like that embiggens us, that, that gives us eyes to see the Mm. vastness of life. And I think that's where beauty is found in that messiness. Mm, I completely agree with you. And I, you know, I, I think each of us has a different way of approaching, um, of approaching life and approaching information. The literal, the literal everything is a gift. We need people who are able to like literally just unambiguously do and be, uh, and that's all a gift. But likewise, we also need those who are able to look below the surface of things uh, and to offer complex images, things that give their gifts over a period of time. Um, And that's why, yeah, you know, the scriptures coming back to this proportion, like there's totally like 
very direct teaching and exhortation in the Christian scriptures. And there's narrative. And there's poetry, all of which have a different gift to give, some of which is quick delivery, some of which uh, inoculates in you over time and over a lifetime of reading begins to bear this deeply rooted fruit. And we need that balance and that wholeness. Yeah, yeah. No, but you just do the math in scripture. Like there's a reason you know, two-fifths of it is is poetry. Like, because that speaks to how we experience yeah. the good news. Anyway, uh, Paul, I was kind of terrified of this conversation, yeah. to be real honest. Uh, poetry, not something I'm super comfortable <laughs> with, but I feel like you have embiggened my spirit. And now I'm curious about this, and I hope uh, mm. my listeners are as well. The book, Bower Lodge, uh, you can go get it now. Um, and uh, it's a gift. So thanks for writing that. And Paul, it's great, great meeting you, man. Luke, it's been so enjoyable to be here. Thank you so much for hosting me in this space. You also embiggen me. (laughs) Right on, man.